Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. I'm here with Jamison West, the author of The Emotional Side of Selling a Business. He's also been an entrepreneur for over 25 years, built Arterian, formerly JWCS, a Microsoft service provider that he grew from one-man shop to a 40-man company, both through organic growth and acquisition of four other IT service companies. He went from co-founder of three SaaS companies, including uh, Team Maddox, Smileback and Time Zest, and it currently serves as a fractional CEO of Smileback and chairman of Time Zest. He enjoys his role as a strategic coach and consultant for several U.S. clients. Welcome, Jamison. Thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. One of the places we always start is kind of the origin story. How did you get into the world of building companies and acquisitions and mergers, selling them, and what led up to the book? And we're going to talk a lot about the book, but kind of what what was the journey that led up to writing a book to help others? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a long story. I'll try to make short, but um, it, I, you know, I, I think I I knew very very early on in my life that I was going to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know what that meant. Uh, what I knew is I wanted to be in business, um, and I, I struggled because I didn't have any specific um, talent as it like a trade or anything like that. I just kind of saw my uncle who was in business do his thing. So I went to the University of Washington Foster School of Business um, and, uh, and really kind of came out of that saying, what do, what do I enjoy? And, and I enjoyed technology. I, I call myself more a geek than a nerd. Uh, I, I, I couldn't write a line of code. If, if, if you had a gun to my head, I wouldn't know what to do. Um, but, but I love technology and I love how it's changing the world. So I began helping um, others in the uh, business owners, um, figure out how to leverage technology. And this is, you know, websites were just coming out in 1995. Um, and I started to build a business uh, around consulting with business owners, just kind of helping them figure it out. And and uh, next thing I knew, I owned an IT services business and started to grow it. And I hit this kind of e-myth threshold of 10 employees um, and realized that... Um, it was time to bear down and get serious if I wanted to have a real business on my hands or I could just kind of, uh, you know, stick around that kind of nice little glass ceiling level of 10 employees. And, uh, and that's when I decided to move into acquisitions uh, just to break through that glass ceiling through, through, through acquisition instead of organic growth strategies. It was a much more rapid approach fraught with risk. I could talk about that a fair amount. Um, I call my three and a half acquisitions. That's another whole fun one. Why, why a half? But there's a half in there. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's kind of the order they went in. And then uh, almost lost the business and recovered um, and ultimately had an opportunity to sell and sold. Um, so it was a 21-year journey. Um, it was, And what I realized at the end of that sale, I was invited to sit on a panel. I've been a speaker for over a decade, but I was invited to sit on a panel just kind of talking about 
kind of the, that journey of the exit. And, and the panel was called the emotional side of selling. Um, and the person who'd hosted it actually wrote the forward in the book. And he's one of the case studies in the book. And I realized that there was just no resource out there for that side. I knew all about valuations and finance and legality of, of, of an exit, but for some, especially those who were kind of aging up a bit like I am and, uh, and have put their whole life's work and career into one thing and then decide to leave. Uh, that it's, it's not like this just, you know, transaction that happens one day. It's your entire professional life and it's, it's fraught with a whole lot of stuff. And I, I just didn't find resources about that. And, it, and that was kind of my cue to say, you know, I, I, think I, I think this is something I can offer back. And so with a lot of support from others and a lot of positive, uh, a lot of positive feedback, I decided to write the book. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to somebody else's podcast the other day, and they were talking about how deep entrepreneurs tie their identity to their business, right? They they love what they're doing. So it's not that there's no separation in a true entrepreneur's life, work-life balance. Your your business kind of is your life. You wake up and you start thinking about it and you start, you know, and I've done that most of my life. So, you know, even when I was working for other companies, I usually had a side hustle of some sort or another. Where I had my own business going or whatever, or, you know, I was at a startup that required that type of attention. So I could really see that there's a need for that emotional side because, you know, when you do something where your identity is tied into it, it's kind of like saying, okay, I'm going to redefine myself. Right. <laughs> yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I, I think the entrepreneur is a, a unique breed <laughs> and we don't clock in and clock out. Uh, it's so intertwined. And, and I, I think identity is something that is, you know, we talk about that in the book a lot. It's, it's, um, it is a piece of your identity goes with that sale. And, uh, and a lot of people are lost afterwards. Um, I've, I've, I really love my involvement in uh, something called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, if you're familiar. I'm the pre I've been in for 10 years or so. I'm the president of the Las Vegas chapter, um, deeply involved. I'm a lifer. Um, and, and what I love about it is it's this like, you know, it's, it, you find your tribe. A bunch of people are kind of messed up in the head because we're all entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> it's an Taking interesting way to put it, but yeah, I, 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 risks. I mean, I've never had a normal job. People are like, well, what was the job you had before? I was like, oh. you know, I've, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I'd, I'd be the worst employee on the planet, but it's because of how we think. Right. And, and, uh, it, it's, a, it creates a unique set of challenges and problems and rewards. And, uh, and it's just the kind of a life we choose. Yeah. So, uh, one of the things I look out for right now is trying not to hire entrepreneurs because I know if I get one, I might have him for a year or two, but I'm not keeping a true entrepreneur tied onto my idea and my vision and my future. If they're truly entrepreneur, they're going to, they're going to tell me what they think more often than I want to hear it. Cause I know I would. And then, <laughs> you know, and at some point they're going to go out and try to do it on their own better. Right. And you know, as it relates to this conversation, um, as part of this journey, uh, there's a lot of roll-ups happening in our industry and there's been, uh, you know, as there are many, but it's, it's particularly hot in this IT services industry right now. And um, some of those roll-ups involve trying to keep the proprietor on as a leader or manager. And I've talked to several folks who've been through this and I coach several companies, mm -hmm. uh, executive teams that do this. And, uh, most of them have agreed that with maybe one or two exceptions, it just doesn't work. 
So <laughs> we got to go hire somebody to, to, you know, they get bored. They're, they, they're no longer like passionately involved in the project. They're just, they've got a little piece of something and they want to go create. That, yeah. That's a big part of it. Like I said, I think, I think there's, you, there's a timeline. You might keep them actively engaged for a year, maybe two. And after that, you know, I see, I, um, I've seen a lot of offers going out to uh, competitive offers, meaning people were offering against what our project was in the marketing space. We were doing a marketing roll-up and uh, they were all five-year earnouts. I was like, how are you going to, like, this is, for marketing <laughs> agencies, your CEO is usually the original creative or very visionary of a person. And I'm like, I don't understand how these, per, you know, private equity companies and, uh, you know, and strategic purchases, do they really believe they're going to keep that individual actively engaged for five years? I just don't see how that works. So, and it doesn't, if you read the statistics and stuff, you know, usually that, uh, that CEO does leave before the five-year earnout, and he just doesn't get the rest of his money. Then he's kind of jaded that he didn't get what he was quote unquote promised. And, uh, you know, it's part of this strategy of like knowing how to exit, when to exit. If you don't think you can hang around for the, uh, the entire earnout period, you probably ought to negotiate a shorter one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it, it, even in my sale, I, I had a three-year contract, but it renewed annually for three years. And after one year, that was it. And it was great because we mutually like kind of saw it. Yeah. It shook hands and it was, it was very amicable, but one year, that was about as far, and I, I was barely hanging on at that. Now, you said something during your uh, talk about like your origin about those three act or the three and a half acquisitions. You <laughs> talked about the first one being good and the second, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. That's a common theme that I heard a lot. You know, like, you know, I've heard uh, different companies I've talked to and like, yeah, our first uh, acquisition went awesome. So I thought, man, we're really going to do this. And the second one nearly sunk us, right? Yep. There's, um, you know, there's something there. So tell me about that. That let's talk a little bit about that the acquisition growth model where you're doing acquired uh, to hire and and to grow, and what were the lessons learned inside of that? Oh yeah, <clears throat> that's interesting. Well, I had been working with. Uh, I was in Seattle. I had an IT services business. I'm in Las Vegas now, but I was in Seattle during that entire timeline. Stayed after college, and. Um, I had been working, I'd met some folks in roughly 2006 and realized there was a real community of people who did this work and there were friendly competitors, right? And one of them in particular uh, named Brad, I got good, still to this day, a close friend. We've worked on three other businesses together. So two of my software companies are actually his ideas. Um, so uh, we just over a couple of years developed like a relationship where we were communicating about what we did, how we did it, best practices, people. And ultimately um, I was just able to grow a little faster. I had a little bit more of that um, entrepreneurial. Well, I wouldn't say entrepreneurial because he's definitely that I had more of a, I had more of an operations management people focus. So I was able to grow and scale a little more quickly. And ultimately he said, you know, I'm ready to do something else. So I acquired your business. And at that point we were so we communicated so well for so long. The diligent process was a snap. Everything just kind of clicked and it was very smooth. Um, so I had 10 people. It's like right at that E-myth threshold. He had five and boom, 15. Um, and right away I was like, wow, that was very accretive to the business. That worked well. It was smooth. We were integrated in like three months and we're ready to go. I'm like, let's do that again. 
I knew everybody in the community. I kind of raised my hand and said, hey, I'm buying. And I had a line of people saying, hey, how about me? So my second one was um, uh, not perfectly aligned to what we did. Um, I tried to keep the owners on. That didn't really work out. But I had mitigated any financial issue by making it principally earn out. So I knew that they weren't aligned and what stayed, they got paid for, what didn't, they didn't. And it worked. So it was, wasn't, it was distracting, which is why I would call it, when I say the good, the bad, and the ugly, it wasn't awful, but it was, it was uh, distracting. <clears throat> it didn't really help the business, except for a couple of really good people, actually. Um, but then my third one, I, I was still hungry. I was still, so we, we now we, we, we went from 15 to 25 on that one. And I'm like, okay, I want to get to 40 or 50. So I talked to somebody else who was interested in, in selling and they had literally just bought a, they were a 10 person company had just bought a five person company. And then I bought them 30 days later, they hadn't even transitioned. That's my one and a half. They hadn't even transitioned them onto the books or into the, they hadn't pulled them together. So I pulled all 15 of them right into the business as well. So I went from 25 to 40. Um, and that was an unmitigated disaster, not with malintent or anything, but there was a there was just some immaturity on the fiscal side, right? Uh, there, the due diligence ended up missing a lot of stuff. Um, and I love thinking about culture and due diligence. I think it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. You think about what I just did in 22 months. I went from one culture of 10 people five companies under one roof, 40 people between five and 10 each. Um, and wow, it was a hot mess. Um, the, the culture was struggling. We were ready to bleed clients and we did bleed some clients. We bled a couple good employees and um, it was a, it was a really, really tough road. It was the most stressful year of my life. And it was a very, very tough road to recover. You know, I can understand that I ran, uh, I ran IT divisions of companies for a while in my earlier career. And it's one of the fields where you really have a, there's a lot of prima donnas <laughs> in the <laughs> IT space. Uh, I had Oracle DBAs that made more money than I did as the, you know, senior director of operations. And, you know, some of them would come in late and, you know, you know, work weird hours and, but they were on call. And, you know, I had HR call up and go, hey, so-and-so is doing this or that. I was like, yeah, I'm going to let them too. Like, you know, we had Oracle DBAs so good that Oracle would call us wanting to contract them to go back to Oracle to help fix things, right? And excite in some other places. So there's nothing you can do when you've got somebody that's got the skill set like that. So if you're buying those companies and you're integrating those cultures and those prima donnas and these, you know, rock stars, I can see where, you know, it, it takes, it would take a little extra attention to make sure the culture's right, that everybody's on the same vision and the same path. And, you know, um, especially some of those guys where guys like we just let them get away with whatever they did. So long as I give you a task or a project, it gets done, you know, you know, yeah, I don't care. We do. I, I, we definitely ran into that. Um, we definitely ran. Um, and not just through acquisition, just through hires, you know, senior engineers, they tend to be, yeah, it, it's a very, very, it's a struggle. And, and right now as a coach in this industry, it's really something we focus on is making sure that, that we kind of don't allow for that behavior, even with very, very, very senior people or that we draw a line. And it's, it, that can be so, so hard for, um, 
for a business owner to let go of somebody with that level of talent. But ultimately, if they're disrupting the culture, um, that's more problematic. So it's it's been a really interesting balance for a lot of our clients and for myself at that time to kind of say, what's more important? And ultimately, the way I cleaned up our culture and kind of got everybody aligned, um, and I still do this work today, is we, we came up with a very detailed culture guide of not just core values, but a level below that. Like, here's how, here's how it was called the the emotional and behavioral expectations of our team. There were like 25 bullets on it. We were very, very specific about what we expected. Um, I read that out. To, I sat down, had a one-hour staff meeting with those 40 people, and I, a few people never came back um, after that day. And I thought I'd done the wrong thing for a <laughs> until, um, until several people the following day said, Thank, best thing you ever did. We were going to leave, but now we're staying. The right people left wrong people <laughs> more specifically and um turned out to be the best thing i ever did it was that that was the beginning of our path to recovery one of the best systems engineers I'd have, i'm not going to say his name he's friends with me on linkedin he might be able he might be watching this live but one of the best systems engineers i've ever had was absolutely totally disruptive in an environment he was actually i, I got hired to replace him he was actually the uh, senior director and they made him step down because of his behavior. System would go out or whatever. Somebody would do something stupid and crash the system. And he would literally kiss, you know, kick a trash can across the room and pull an exorcist, you know, F this, F that, you know. Uh, my second day there, somebody uh, was working on a server and they did something to the wrong device and took down the system for a little bit. Actually caused a small outage. You know, we, we got it up, back up and running probably 15 minutes. But it was an outage for, for an Internet service provider. And... Uh, caused the problem and we were out there the the roach coach food wagon food truck was out front when when they come out and told that him and i were standing out there he literally threw through two chili cheese uh conies against the thing you know against the the roach coach thing scream and cussing and stomp back inside and that's the first exposure i had of it and i thought well i'm gonna have to let this guy go and luckily <laughs> for me because i just like he was very disruptive and it was really hard to do because this guy was brilliant and uh, luckily for me, his wife wanted to move away. So they moved to Arizona and uh, he's in a different state now, but they moved there. And I was like, okay, can't be kicking trash cans if he's remote. So let's try this. So he worked for us remotely. And funny thing was, is one of our guys come to me and said, one of the other senior engineers came to me and said, you know, I think this guy's working two jobs. I was like, you know what? I don't care. He said, what do you mean? If I worked two jobs, you'd fire me. I said, yeah, but he takes on twice the number of projects to you. He takes on the most more complex, and he gets them done half the time you do. If he's working a second job, I don't care. You know, I need him. Yeah, like, it's less about time than, than output. I, I would agree with that. There's a lot of people, with, especially with this whole, like, now, post-COVID, it's like this virtual, the ability. It's really changing the landscape of the work that, and technology that we do. People are more prepared what they need to do when they need to do it just accomplish things. We had some sun microsystems devices in the, in the building. And one of them had a security fall that we got hacked in through. And he worked with sun to the point where he's like, like, just give me the source code. I'll fix it. I'll fix the driver myself. He was just <laughs> like at that level. And uh, he told them exactly where it was, but you know, what port, how they were getting in, you know, the, the things, you know, where the you know where the bug was probably at in their code i mean he just like that like if you can't fix this in the next three days you need to let me come into your site and i'll, I'll look at the code and we'll fix it together and i mean he was just at that level right but if i could see if you're merging in it companies and you guys got guys like it are very disruptive 
either have to find a way where they're not in the environment causing disruption or they got to go and you you find 100%. somebody. I'd rather replace culture, the disruption. Culture trumps it all. Yeah. Culture trumps I, it all. Yeah, I'd rather find a two guys that are, you know, half the skill set level that can do that guy's job and less disruptive than I would to have one disruptive guy because it takes a couple of days after a blow up like that for everybody to get their nerves back down to a normal thing. It's funny is we'd have a meeting and somebody walk in the room and you could just see if they were not, if they needed an announcer tell us something was wrong because they would cringe down. They would stare at him when they were telling, ah, I think we got to not, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, so you've got three and a half, you know, what was the outcome of that? How did you guys get past the, okay, this thing almost sunk the company. Well, there was kind of the, the cultural piece. And then there was also a financial piece that was really difficult. <clears throat> Again, not intentional on on the uh, seller's part, but there was some unearned revenue not on the books, um, which is a very kind of tricky part of the balance sheet that some less mature owners don't understand from a financial perspective. That really, really was painful. We uh, we had to we naturally had some attrition of people, a few clients. We kind of got a little smaller. I think we worked our way back to about thirty staff. And we got very, very tight um, and just focused for about 18 months on improving our situation. We, we got quite profitable. And in 2015, um, yeah, I think it was 2015, we had our most profitable year in you know, 20 years. So we started in 95. So 2015, we had a, we had a very, very good year. And then it was uh, right towards the end of that year that I had, um, I had a couple people reach out that I was close to said, you know, you really have created something interesting here. And I was openly speaking about our challenges and just and how we were repairing. People were like, wow, like that that's interesting. So we had some inquiries about a potential acquisition. And um, I was like, wow, I, you know, it wasn't really what I was driving for that quickly, but I was exhausted. I think I'd mentioned that had been the hardest year of my life. Um, I was exhausted. I'm way more of a visionary CEO. I'm a leader guy, but I'm not an operational manager kind of guy. I had to kind of, I was trying to wear both hats. I was tired of it. I was tired of being the guy who might get the call. Um, even though we'd grown past, I wasn't an engineer anymore, but um, I, I was just really exhausted. So it started to tickle my interest, right? My curiosity was peaked and, um, and, and, and I kind of leaned into it and started to think about it. And that's kind of where the book right? Is uh, that I realized there was this little hook that got set. And, uh, and once I started to think about it and say, wow, this could really change my outcome. Like I, I could sell, I could start something new. There's a lot of fear in that, right? Massive change, but heck, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'll figure it out. And that's kind of my mentality. Um, and yeah, so the journey began and uh, it turned into a lot of conversations and I'm, we can talk a lot about that. But what I, what I realized is that I knew all the nuances. I knew my EBITDA and the multiples and the blah, 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 blah. I knew all that stuff. What I didn't know is I, I wasn't prepared for the emotional side of the next handful of months. And months. So um, you're at 2015, the business is going better. You've got somebody that like just kind of said, hey, I really think you created something here. There's a point in that to make to all our listeners. If you're thinking about buying a business and you think, you know, 
you've got buddies or you know people out there that own business and you think they would never sell, everything changes with time and circumstances. So it's best if you really think you'd like to own, you know, your buddy Joe's, you know, or somebody's, you know, business someday, put that bug in the ear and say, hey, you know, I really like what you created. And if you ever decide you want to do something with it, you know, come talk to me before you talk to anybody else. Because like in your situation, you weren't expecting that. You weren't like planning for that. But once somebody kind of threw that idea in there, it started the gears to turn. And that'll happen. Yeah. That'll happen with anybody out there, uh, you know, um, when their gears start to turn, you kind of want to, if, you know, if you're the acquisition entrepreneur, if you're a, you know, an entrepreneur looking to buy a business, you want your name to be first of mind when those gears start turning in that direction. So, well, and that's how my first acquisition happened. My, that first, when I did with my buddy, Brad, I, it had been conversations. We were sitting out lunch one day and I said, you know, I, I think I've decided to do this. I've decided to, you know, do an acquisition and, and he kind of raised his hand and said, me first. But I mean, it's because I put it out there. Right. So you're at this point, you're now starting to have multiple conversations. Uh, you realize that there's this emotional, you know, decision to be made. You've got your identity tied to this business. You're been built it for like this point, 20, 21 years. And, uh, you know, what led up to like, well, how did that exit go? I mean, did it, um, what were your lessons learned in that? And then we'll talk about what led up to the book and, what are the key points of the book so people can uh, know why they should go grab it? So, so yeah, it, what I, what, what I did is I, the key, the kind of the, what I did is I, I like that fable based Patrick Lencioni, Bob Berger, like the, the, I like that fable based type book. So what I decided to do was, um, and I, I had been featured in another book as a case study and the person who'd helped put that together, the editor had helped put that together. Just, I thought he did a wonderful job. And I was like, here's my cue. I'd been thinking about the book. I'd talked about the book, but it had been a couple of years, COVID had hit and all these things. So the very beginning of 2021, I met this guy and I was like, I think you're the person who can help me. And he agreed to do so. So the fable, the first two thirds of the book is really that journey from kind of the setup of somebody owning a business for 20 years and and it gets this, I, somebody mentions something, but it's not my story. It's a fable and it's pulled from a lot of other experiences, right? There's some, there's a couple nuggets in there that kind of came from my own experience, but it really is this fable that, and it's, even though it's an IT services business, that's not important. It could be anybody kind of who's built this business and kind of spent their life building something. And now all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, what next? Um, I then interviewed, um, six other folks who'd been through a, an emotional journey in their sale. And almost everybody I talked to who'd sold, who'd owned the business for a long time, had a story. Like they're like, yeah, there was a moment where it almost fell apart or where, um, you know, where I felt like I was disingenuous or you know, all these things, my identity was going to be go away. I, what was I going to do afterwards? Cause it's not enough money to retire all these questions. So there's six case studies. That's the back third of the book which are just really these folks that I, I, I communicated with who really had a story around some emotional thing. So when we did those six case studies, there's portions of those that go integrated into the fable as well. And um, that worked out extremely well. It's just, it, it, it's really a simple short story that pulls you into like, I can see how this would happen. And you kind of see how 
Alex, who's our primary character, right, through the book, how, how he navigates all of this and, and, and his outcome. But then it gets anchored in these stories that, and those case studies that really allow you to go, how do I mitigate uh, the downside of all these things that might happen in that journey? So it's a great experience. If anybody who owns a business, you're going to exit your business one way or another at some point in your life, right? <laughs> it's going to happen. If you're going to be intentional about it, and if at some point that might include a sale, then I, you know, I hope that I hope there's a lot of learning in this book uh, to help you kind of prep yourself mentally for the journey. So over the last couple of years, I've talked to at least 200 plus businesses, probably closer to 250, 300. Just because, I mean, we we were involved in a, a, a huge rollup, and we we're, you know, we were doing you know 25, 30 interviews a week of of uh, different companies wanting to sell. One of the things I learned really quick is money is rarely the number one concern of an entrepreneur because of that emotional stuff you're going through, you know, is normally not the number one concern of an entrepreneur who's owned their business, say, for 10 plus years at least. It's usually not. It's not number one. It's on the list. They want to make enough money. They don't want to be uh, taken advantage of and stuff like that. But when you go, when you went to sell this and you started looking at that, what were your top priorities? Was money the top priority or did you have other? You know, it was, it was on the list. It was, you know, it's interesting. Like you said, I, I don't know if it was number one. I wanted to take care, you know, there's the legacy of the business, um, which is a really difficult thing because when you lose control, there's no certainty in that, right? So that was a, that was one of the struggles. That's one of the things we talk about. I wanted, there were people who'd been with me on most of that journey that I wanted to make sure that taken care of. Um, there were clients. I wanted to make sure I didn't just you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater. That's interesting. Care, right? you, you nailed the top three that I, so I've been keeping notes on what people think are most important. It's their legacy because they created this, yep. right? They created a name or brand, a legacy. They, they want their legacy. They're their people, right? Yep. They want their, their people taken care of and not fired or laid off or liquidated or whatever you want to call it. And then the third one's always, I need to make sure you're going to take care of my customers. Then they start talking about money. A lot of people in the acquisitions and mergers, especially new guys that are just getting into this, and they're not trying to negotiate deal. They jump right into what do you want for your business? And I think that's just the wrong question. Like my, my, my favorite question is what is the ideal outcome to, for you? If you could design the perfect exit, what would that look like? And I rarely get, well, I, I, perfect exit, you give me $100 million for my $5 million company. Like, that's not normally the answer. The, you know, when they're serious, it's like, I need to know my people are taken care of. I need to know that you're not going to just liquidate everything and shut the thing down. I've spent 20 years on this. I'd like to see it, <laughs> you know, survive. Even if you even if you wait until after, one of the guys, he's 80, I was talking to, and he's like, I don't care what you do to it when I'm gone, but so long as I'm alive, keep the brand, keep the wet, you know, keep something up so I can glance on it and see that what I created is still there. Like, you know, I, I can, yeah. I can own up to that. So, uh, you know, you nailed those right off. And then, you know, was there anything that came after those three before the money or were that's kind of like, well, no, I think, I think once I kind of, and I didn't sell to the quote unquote highest bidder, right. I didn't, I did find somebody that was very aligned to our industry, had a, from what I could tell, a roughly similar similar culture, similar tools, similar processes. Never tell your people that nobody's going to get let go because that's almost never the case. So, you know, I knew that there was going to be a little bit of attrition there, and so I I vowed to help anybody uh, because I had a lot of connections.
questions to help anybody out and make sure that they landed on their feet. Um, but the next is a little bit the money, like the turn, all you do have to, you know, you spend your life building something. And, and I knew in that exit, it wasn't going to be enough to sustain my life for the rest of, you know, forever. I was, I was at the time in my mid forties. Um, and I was, you know, I wasn't done. I mean, I'm not ready to, I'm way too <laughs> energetic to be done. And there, but there has to be enough that it, like the first thing I'm doing isn't worried about scrambling to get a, you know, a job. I, there needs to be, there needs to be enough on the table for me to like go create again. And that was important to me. Um, however it came, I wanted to, I wanted to be certain about a certain percentage of it, like what's guaranteed, what's kind of at risk, kind of all those kind of the levers we use and all that, right. out and yeah, all the stuff that, that there's plenty performance of performance bonuses and yeah, all that. Stuff. <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure that, and it's tough to go into earnout. This is part of the journey, like going to earnout, but all the money that goes into earnout, you have no control over because you're not there anymore. Right. I mean, that's a very, very, it's, it's, a, it's kind of, you have to process that. Right. And you I discount hundred percent of it. You might get zero. What's contractually on the table period. Right. And, and making sure that I that there was enough there that I could provide for myself and my family and go start something else. Because at the end of the day, I'm not going to go get a job. I'm unhireable. I'm an entrepreneur. So I got to go do it again. Yeah, I get it. I'm a horrible employee. Uh, if you look at the track record, <laughs> I probably have like a, a track record of a year here and a year there. It takes about a year before I finally tell the CEO what I think about what they're doing. <laughs> so... Uh, and, and sometimes it goes really well and we fix things and other times I get asked to uh, find another location. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I actually had one CEO one day, I actually said something about, you know, you need to learn how to like rephrase what you're saying when you're in front of a CEO. And I was like, you should really learn how to run an IT company if that's what you're going to, a software company, if that's the one you're going to be the CEO of, because you don't have a clue what we do here. This is like his third week there. I lasted yeah. about three weeks after that before we found, <laughs> we found my replacement. And I even told him, I said, if you want to find my replacement, I'll stay here until, until you get him fully trained. It's okay. You know, I've got skills. We'll travel. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, know, you and I are not going to see eye to eye. You know, this guy was not a software engineer. He came out of a financial sector to run an anti-spam company. Luckily, he was replaced by the uh, what I think was an insider placement. And I won't say who it is because I like the guy. And it's a very, 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 very big company. But uh, the CEO of our company, after we were acquired, became the CEO of that company later on. And I'm talking one of the top IT companies probably on the planet in these uh, anti-spam, antivirus type of space. So wow. I'll leave it there. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, you know, you've gone through this journey. You're, you're, you, you know, you, you have a business. You decided, man, I'm probably going to sell this. And now you looked at it and said, well, the one thing I want to get to is you just told me, and that this is very common too, I didn't take the highest and best offer. I'm absolutely positive. I've heard that more than a hundred times, like, you know, from, you know, people I've talked to that sold businesses previous before, and I'm looking at their business now. And, you know, we just get into what happened the last time. There are so many more things important than a few extra dollars. And a lot of times the difference between the highest and best and where you ended up wasn't usually significant, like life-changing altering, but the difference between being aligned, knowing your people are taken care of was, so in this case where you didn't take the highest and best, what was the deciding factor to take somebody with a little bit less? Is that alignment or? Alignment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, 
there was another company that was looking at selling at roughly the same time. We were actually talking about merging or me acquiring them. They were a little smaller than me, um, but I just didn't have the gut to do another acquisition. I found this acquirer. They're like, well, you know, I could pull both of you into it. So there, there was some integrity that came with that. I, if, if the better offer, the slightly better offer was pretty much all cash, no earnout, and a little bit more money, but they wouldn't have include this, included this other person that got acquired at the same time. So the, And they were a little disc, they didn't have a great reputation yet in the industry. I mean, they're a good company, I think, and, and grown, but, but they're just a little more disconnected from what we were doing from the set. They had their processes and systems set up in a way that I just didn't think was going to protect my clients and my staff. This, uh, the, the people that acquired us were close, right? They, they, I knew them from through the industry. They used the same systems. They were setting up in a new city, so they would need most of the talent. They were excited to serve the clients in a very similar way. And just that alignment it just felt so much more comfortable. I knew what I was getting into. It didn't feel like a massive transition to a completely different business. It felt like a natural uh, marriage. And it pulled in this other this other uh, group that we were that we were close to. So we combined and created the Seattle office of this larger company, and and it worked out great. Um, I you know not perfect in every way, but a lot of integrity in how it was all handled, which was uh, which I appreciated. And to this day, I mean, if you go if you go through a, uh, an acquisition on either side and there, and it ends up with a lack of integrity or some acute problems where you feel like somebody was dishonest or didn't act with, with, with the right intention, you, you live with that. Right. And I didn't want that on my conscience. So we, we, we parted ways in my first acquisition. I mentioned uh, Brad, uh, he, we went on to do a couple software companies together. Um, still friends. I was chatting with them today, actually. And then I have uh, the sale that I did. We're still connected, run into each other at conferences, we're friends, right? Like, so you kind of, there's something that kind of comes with that. Like, wow. We, we figured out that level of, and it, there was fraught with some risk and emotion and, and struggles, but you, you work through it and you feel like you both kind of did the right thing. That feels good because you're going to carry that with you forever. Yeah, that's what I, when I look inside of this industry and, and what people are doing and what I want to do, when I meet with a business owner, the end of the, at the end of the day, I want to be of service to them. So my first question is always kind of, what is it you're looking to accomplish? And let's see how I can help you get there. You know, and you know, I've had people, first thing on the phone, well, I'm trying to accomplish making a million dollars with my business and I haven't seen numbers yet or anything. Like, oh, cool, let's see how we can get you there. Now, often you can't, not with like, the answer is we get you there by figuring out how to double your revenue because that's the only model that's going to put you at that type of valuation. But a lot of times, like trying to, uh, I guess I've got a dual serving motive inside of that is most of the people that I know, like just like you, you're out there creating a, another company. Had I bought one of your previous companies, I want to leave on such great terms that when you create something else really cool and you're ready to move on, you call me back and go, hey, I just created something really cool. You bought the last thing I built. Are you even interested in looking at it? Right. And if yeah. we end, if we end, if I make it a pain in the butt and I don't, you know, treat you right and you have to fight to get your money and all the other things that happen inside of the space, you're not going to take that call from me or you're not going to make the call to me when you're ready to do something like that. And yeah. and I think that's a downfall of a lot of people in this space. Some of the guys think they gotta be like, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street type of, you know, mm -hmm. you know, take no prisoners or what's that's I'm messing them up. Uh 
uh what's the other one um just the regular wall street right the blue horseshoe shoe likes you know anaconda yeah. steel guy but you know you th- you've got to be ruthless and greedy and stuff i i don't think that's true i honestly and you know i ran my real estate uh business the same way i honestly think you can be an investor in real estate and in this case in businesses and still be a good guy and serve other people and if you do that, it'll come back to you. The guys like, you know, you and other people who are serial entrepreneurs, you're going to create something else. May bring that back to the table to me later on. So, yeah, And it's, it's a reputation to protect. I mean, the, with the software companies that I've worked on since, I mean, the folks I sold my MSP to, my, kind of one of my first customers on both of those platforms. And now the industry here is that, you know, I've gone on to build something else and the people that I sold to are fully on board and, and enjoy it. So it, it, they're not potential acquirers, I wouldn't say, but, um, but they're good, they're great customers and therefore they're, you know, they're advocates for what I do. And, and that, and that alone helps me further my entrepreneurial career. So, you know, I, there's no reason to burn bridges. It's, it's, you know, we all have a reputation to protect and build build upon. And for me, I'm, I'm, I'm in this fairly vertical industry. And the last thing I want is to, you know, taint my reputation for a couple bucks. It doesn't make any sense. A lot of people don't realize how small, like small town mentality or small town um, communications come into play when any, any, any industry, right? Most industries, they may look big. There may be a thousand participants, but it's kind of that small town. If you do something bad, everybody's going to know. <laughs> and, and the word gets around like real estate's that way. I'm, I'm in a small community here in Tulsa and I used to own the, or have an ownership interest of the, uh, the real estate entrepreneurs association. And uh, we didn't allow, if you, we found out you were a bad actor, you were actually, you know, harming either tenants or other investors. We booted you from the club and didn't let you back in. And, but the word got out pretty quickly is you don't want to do deals or loan money to, or borrow money from this guy or that guy, you know? So it's just, you know, a lot of people don't realize how well, especially this day and age, right? Where people can just send an email or send a chat, you know, a, a Slack message to, Hey, I know you work with this, you know, this guy before, you know, is he an all right guy? So I, I have a company right this second that I had already, I told the guy yesterday, I'm not interested. And it's because, a three million dollar furniture company, uh, decent guy. Seemed like on the phone, he shared what he wanted to share with me on our first call. Turns out, I know people in the industry, so I called a couple of people who've been in the industry for thirty years. Said, "Hey, I'm looking at this. You know, this. I can't give you the exact location. You know, the exact name of the company or the guy, but it's in this company. This this talent is like." And they just immediately said, "Was it this guy?" And I was like, "Why?" I said, "Because that guy's in a lot of trouble. He's he's losing vendor. Like the vendors won't deliver to him. He's blacklisted. There's a name for it. They're frozen out. He's not paying his vendors like the to buy the furniture, so he can't order anymore. So there's I forgot what they call it, but he's a you know. Never, I had people you know telling me you better pull a DMB on it. You know, the Duns and Bradstreet report on this guy. Like you got to do your due diligence. Something's going on there. And uh, he had told me what was going on, but it's a small enough. A lot of these industries are small enough that. You know, in our due diligence, as we talk to other people, not just saying, hey, I'm thinking about buying this company, but what do you think about the space? You know, who are who, who would you work with and who would you want if you could buy any company in the space? Who would you you'll find out stuff about other people in the industry fairly quick. And yeah. uh, I, I think. I think people are naive to think that the, the word won't get around if you go out and treat people wrong. But it happens, right? There's there's bad acquisitions. There's bad and there's bad actors in every business and every model. But yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's I I've really been 
fortunate to enjoy being a speaker and coach and right and an author. And that stuff doesn't work if I go around acting without integrity. Right. I mean, it, it, there's a, I, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a false sense of integrity. I, you have to you treat people right. And, and your personal brand naturally grows because you're doing the right thing. And yeah, if I were going to, if I were acting without integrity, uh, there's no way I'd be where I am. Right now. I think people believe that, you know, it's short-term thinking. It's kind of Very short-term. So let's go back to your book. We got about yeah. you know, probably 10 or so minutes left here that yep. we can we'll chat. What are some key takeaways? Like, you know, what are, I imagine if you're writing a book on the emotional uh, journey of selling a business, there are some common factors, some common emotional, you call it experiences that sellers go through. Can you share some of that with us and get? Uh, yeah, ahead? absolutely. I mean, so a couple of highlights might be one, one for me that was uh, really tricky was how and when to talk to your team. Um Another one would be uh, how do you make decisions about investments and spending? So there, there were some really, really interesting things. My behavior, as soon as I kind of had my, as soon as I had this inkling of interest and you know all the financials behind it and kind of how everything works, you start going, okay, first thing is I was a super open, transparent, door open. Anybody come in and talk to me anytime, share the financials say yes to anything that made any sense kind of guy. But um, all of a sudden, I realized that investing um, in a project or research or a hire that might not be accretive to the, to the value, to the potential acquirer of the business was just coming out of my pocket for no possible benefit. Like, let's say we were going to go hey, we're going to go do this big marketing effort. And it's going to cost $50,000. And, and I don't even entertain it because if there's a potential sale in front of me and I go spend 50 grand and they don't value it, it's just literally 50 grand that I spent for nothing, right? So I don't, I put a whole bunch of decision-making on hold and it didn't take long before my team was like, what's going on? Your door's closed a little bit more. You're, you're kind of saying no to everything that you used to say yes to. Um, what, what is this big pause? So I was putting cash in the bank and not spending on anything I didn't have to spend on because in an asset acquisition, the cash in the bank stays with the seller, right? Like I'm, if, I don't, if I don't spend it, I get to keep it. And so that was a, that was a pretty, that was interesting. I just wasn't going to burn money. Um, a second one definitely was when to talk to people. I am a very transparent person. So I, I was telling, I always tell people what my plans are and I hadn't built this came fairly quickly for me. So I hadn't built um, a culture or an understanding on the leadership team that there was a potential exit. And I hadn't created a profit, uh, you know, a phantom equity plan that was really conducive to that for my key people. I, I did try to create some kind of an outcome for the right people at the very last minute, but um, I didn't know when to tell people. And I, and I ended up telling almost everybody, actually everybody before ink was on paper, which is extremely dangerous, not recommended, but because the second you start to do that, the, you have yourself over a barrel, right? Because now if it doesn't happen, you put the fear of God into everybody that you're going to do some, Oh, you want to sell? I'm out of here. Right. I don't even know these people. Who are coming, right. So um, 
that was uh, that was a very, 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 very difficult. And I bet there's something in your head that says it's better to come from me from them to find from an outside source somehow. Right. So you're playing 100%. this race of I'd rather tell them openly and in, in, in a way I want to and format it the way I want it to. Then they'll tell everybody else that they're doing it and they all come to me and go, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, with senior leaders, I sat down, I took them out one by one and sat down, had a conversation about what I was doing, why, where they stood, if they were a key person in the acquisition, kind of what their outcome could look like. So I tried to do that one-on-one, but with the other 20 some people at that point, um, you know, ultimately very shortly before the acquisition, I brought the acquiring group in and we, we did make a joint announcement, but I controlled the conversation. Um, now the challenge is, is in that I ran into a, I ran into something in the agreement after that, but I was in a, I was no longer in a position to say, no, I was the, the buyer had me over a barrel. Now, fortunately, um, the buyer was also acting with integrity and we worked it out. So, uh, but, but those types of it, that, you know, I lost a lot of sleep. I lost a lot of sleep. One of the, you know, all those case studies, that's, those are just a couple of examples, but all these case studies talk about these kind of moments where something changed or they were feeling something. Um, what the, and, then, and then they kind of go on to say like, here's, here's what you might do to mitigate that. Um, one of the case studies talks about building a really discreet list of non-negotiables. Like what, it, what matters to, before you get emotionally invested, before you do make any of these mistakes that I made, right? And know that I'm not going below this, whether it's a dollar amount. I'm not going to sell to somebody who's going to do this with my people or let people. I'm, not, I'm contractually going to have these three things and whatever it is. Like have your list of things that you know, no matter what, they're going to stay in the deal. Make sure that that's extremely clear day one with the buyer. We can, if you can't get there, then let's just end the conversation. And then don't let yourself get so emotionally wrapped around the need to sell or put yourself in such a disadvantage that you are chipping away at what your bot, what your minimum was just because you put yourself in that situation. Uh, that that's a it's a really common really common thing that we see people do. Awesome. So. Uh... We're at the 50-minute mark. I want to share with people how to get a hold of you. So uh, we, you have a website out there that's simply your name, right? So I'm going to put that up there. So if you're listening to this on YouTube or on one of the places where you can see the video, it's on the screen. It's Jamison West. It's J-A-M-I-S-O-N-W-E-S-T.com. And it should be in the show notes. So if you uh, want to reach out to him, I uh, do want to make sure that you know that the, the URL will be available in his contact information and my contact information will be uh, in the show notes on any of the platform, or you can just go to howtoexit.com and the transcript of this will be on there. So that's how you'd be able to reach out. So we've talked about a bunch of different topics. I've asked you some questions and stuff. Is there anything stewing in the back of your mind? Like we really should have talked about this or you should have asked me this. Cause you know, I really want to make sure we get a whole picture of, you know, what's the books about why people could reach out to you and uh, you know, any, uh, any value add. Yeah. You know, the only other maybe thing that I'd add is I, I think we, we, I think we hit on everything about the book, kind of that journey. Uh, it's real interesting that the book kind of ends at the, just slightly after the you know, signature hits the, the, the document, but there is a kind of a second phase. I'm not 
necessarily thinking about writing a book about it, but I've, I've had a couple of people ask and it's it, what, ha what next is, is kind of the other thing. And, and fortunately for me over the last four, five years, I've discovered my what next, but uh, there was a huge question mark there as well. Uh, like, like lose your what? identity, you move away from the company. Maybe you don't have enough. Maybe you don't want to sit on a beach for the rest of your life. or You don't have enough money to do so. And there's some fear that comes with that, right? You're starting over. You're in your 40s or 50s, and, and that was a that was a to uh, to fully utilize my French. It's uh, like what the hell do I do now, right? Yeah. There's there's <laughs> got to be that phase. You sold it. It's gone. Maybe your your earnout period's done. You're you're done, and it's like okay, now what do I do with all this time, right? Yeah. So, and I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm, I'm unhireable. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a, it, it's going to, it's an interesting question. It's one in EO that we, you know, we talk about a lot. So now what? Okay. It's, it's going to be interesting. Well, awesome. I think we, uh, we, we've covered everything pretty well. I want to thank you for being yep. on the show. Hang out for a few seconds after we end the stream and uh, you and I will chat for a few seconds. We'll wrap this up, but I do appreciate your time. And I think that we got a lot of value here today for the, for the listeners. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Cool. All right. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind.